and all the time. Don't we praise the Lord for seeing people come to Christ, people take that next step of baptism. Those of you watching online, we're so grateful to have you. And matter of fact, church family, if you're grateful for all the people watching online, would you give them a hand? Amen. You are loved at Central. Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, and this is a somewhat of a familiar passage of Scripture. There'll be a couple of verses that maybe you've heard before, or maybe you've seen crocheted somewhere and <laughs> at your grandma's house. These are some verses that a lot of people know about, but maybe they don't understand what God is wanting to teach us about. So that's what we're going to be this morning, Jeremiah chapter 29, and we're going to begin in verse number 4. And I don't know about you, but I'm excited about worship this morning, are you? <laughs> I'm excited about it. And so I'm praying that God will do something amazing in your life and in all of our lives today. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Yes, let's stand to read God's word as we get our Baptist aerobics in. Head, shoulders, knees, and toes. Chapter 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease." But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf or in its welfare you will find your welfare. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when, I, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. You may be seated. Uh, back in the summer of 2018, uh, the International House of Pancakes decided that they wanted to shock the world. They decided that they wanted to be known for something other than pancakes. And so they changed their logo, they changed their name, because they wanted to be known to be the International House of Burgers. They got a lot of publicity. Maybe some of you remember this. They, they, they trended number one in Twitter for quite a while, and a lot of people were talking about this, and, and that's the good news. The, the bad news is, is that the public response could be summed up in this one tweet from Wendy's. Can't wait to try a burger from a place that decided pancakes were too hard. Think about that. For a place that has been internationally known for pancakes for years, now wants to be known for hamburgers, that is absolutely ambitious. Now, what we learned from this, now some people debate whether this was just merely a publicity stunt from IHOP or not. We, we don't really know. Actually, we don't really know. But what is interesting, that what we can learn from this experiment is this, is that if you're known for one thing, but talk about being known for something else. You lose something very important. You know what that is? Credibility. If you are known for one thing, but want to tell everybody else you're known for something else, people are going to say, 
you don't know what you're talking about. Well, this morning we are looking at investing in our community. Part of our vision statement is we want to be a multi-generational, multi-ethnic multiplying church in Sanford and the surrounding communities and the nations for the glory of God. We want to raise up the next generation of believers and followers and disciple makers and church planners and missionaries. But the question is, what is it that our church is known for? And what do we want to be known for in the community? As you came in, uh, you hopefully saw a sign because we have them all throughout our campus. It says, you are at Central, right? You are at Central. And that's what we want to have you feel when you come onto this campus. We want you to be loved at Central. And my prayer is for the past 10 years is that Central would be known as a, as a place, as a people, not just a place, who genuinely love God and genuinely love the community. My hope and my goal and my prayer is for our church to be such a, a dynamic ministry in this Central Florida that if our church was ever lost, the city of Sanford and the surrounding communities would be devastated because of the loss of our love and service in the community. And so this morning, as we're looking at this issue of being invested, not just being a day trader, but being invested in the community, our, our minds are taken to Jeremiah chapter 29. And here, Paul, or not Paul, Paul wasn't alive yet. God is speaking through Jeremiah. And he says in verse number four, thus says the Lord to all the exiles. Who is it that God is speaking to here? Is he speaking to his people who were living in Babylon? They were living in exile. And they were in exile because God sent them there. And here's one thing I want you to understand is you just read the Bible in its totality. As you read kind of what it means to be a believer, that God's people have always been in exile. Even in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden because of sin. And you see the people of God later on as they grow, they're sent to Egyptian bondage as they're in exile. And then you see they're brought back to the land. But because of their sins, they're then exiled to Babylon. And it's a picture really that we are pilgrims and strangers in this world. That we're exiles. As believers, we are exiles. As a matter of fact, being an exile means that we live somewhere other than our true home. As Christians... We live in a state of in-between. We live in the state of already, not yet. In the New Testament, believers are known to be called, they're referred to as sojourners and strangers with our citizenship in heaven, awaiting for a city that is to come. So this world isn't our home. I want you to understand that. If you are a Christian, this world is not your home. Aren't you glad? <laughs> I'm glad this world is not all there is. I mean, if this is all there is, oh my stars. But we are still here, Right? We are exiles living in a strange land in a broken and fallen world. And yet, even though we are exiles, even though we're strangers and sojourners and pilgrims living in a broken, fallen world, we are called to love and serve the community. And so this morning, I, what I want you to get from the whole message is this, is that believers should participate and pursue the community around them for the purpose of pointing the community to the hope of Jesus Christ. Believers should participate and pursue the community around them for the purpose of pointing them to the hope of Jesus Christ. Three points real quick. Number one, participate in the community. When the writer here, when, when God says, speaks through Jeremiah, he says in verse number five, he says, build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives, sons and daughters, have children, multiply, do not decrease. Now, there were two wrong ways for God's people to live in exile in Babylon, and there are two wrong ways for us as believers to live in exile here in this world. 
The first wrong way to live is assimilation. The Babylonians here in chapter 29, as we're reading more about them, were, were experts in conquering people. They were known to be just some of the greatest conquerors the world has ever known. And, and, and what they did is they would conquer people, but they would do it in such a way that the people that they conquered wouldn't constantly rebel against them. See, in history prior to the Babylonians, there were two ways to deal with the people that you conquered. The first way is you expel or exterminate them. That is, you either drive them out or you kill them all. But what the problem is this, is that if you drive out these people that were in their land to another land or to some sort of holding tanker, or if you try to exterminate part of them, what happens is, is that they come back nastier and angrier. It's kind of like if you've ever messed with a hornet's nest. You may hit a hornet's nest, but then they come back in fury. Another way that, that, they, that the people prior to the Babylonians dealt with um, these conquered nations is that they would enslave and subjugate them. So they wouldn't necessarily expel them or kill them, but they would enslave them and make them their slaves. And, but the problem is that is that if you enslave people, after a while, people are going to have an uprising against you and try to overthrow you. Well, the Babylonians took a different approach. Their approach to conquering people was through indoctrination and assimilation. And so their approach was this, is that they would take a large group of the people that they conquered and they would educate them in the Babylonian culture and in the Babylonian value system so that these people that they conquered would no longer be what they used to be, but they would be culturally and spiritually Babylonian. So if you remember the book of Daniel, when, when, when uh, King Nebuchadnezzar uh, took these, the, some of the brightest uh, minds of, of uh, Israel, uh, they took Daniel and Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. He took these, these young boys and they groomed them. What did they do? They taught them. They, they educated them. They, they gave them jobs. And, and, and what you would find is they would even give them land and they would go to great schools so that these people who were maybe once Israelites or maybe were once uh, Edomites or Pezerites or Jebusites or Termites, whatever they were before, they would now be Babylonians. And so what they would do is that they would cause them to now assimilate into the culture so that they wouldn't rebel, but they would rely on the culture. Well, God tells them in verse number six, he tells them, don't fully assimilate, but multiply there and don't decrease. In other words, God says, don't lose who you are in the Babylonian culture. Live there, thrive there, make a good living there, learn from the people, but don't adopt their values and don't lose your identity as God's people. In other words, what God is teaching here is you be in them and among them, but don't be of them. Don't be like them. Be distinct. So one bad way for God's people to live in exile is through assimilation. But another bad way for God's people to live in exile is isolation. In verse number 8, how do we get this? Is that in verse number 8, God says, do not let the prophets who are among you deceive you. Don't listen to them. Now, why would God tell them not listen, to not listen to the preacher? Here's why. Because earlier in Jeremiah's writing, there were, be, there were false prophets, one of which name was Hananiah. And Hananiah told before the Babylonian captivity, before even the exile would take place, that, that Hananiah had told the people that it was only going to be maybe one or two years that God's people would be taken out of the land and then God would overthrow all of that and bring them back. And so basically, the false prophets said, you don't have to worry. Yes, you're going to be captured for a little while, but it won't be very long. And so don't get too close to the city. Don't get too close to the people. Just isolate yourself. Isolate your family. Because 
You're going to be rescued very soon. So don't, don't put your tent peg too deep. Don't stay there too long. You have to live there so you can smile on the outside, but then you hate them on the inside. So you just isolate. Well, God says, listen, I didn't send them. That's a lie. I didn't send these prophets to tell you it's just going to be a short time. So what you see here is you have two extremes for God's people living in exile. One is assimilation, and the other one is isolation. And God says, don't assimilate. In other words, in assimilation, we adopt the values and beliefs of the greater culture and community around us. And so what happens for a lot of us is that as believers, we, we, we know, hey, you know, we're going to be living here, we're going to be here, so we're going to be like everything, and so we're going to be like the world. And what happens is that we become so much like the world, we think like the world and dress like the world and talk like the world and do like the world, that there's nothing really distinctive about us. We become just as nasty, just as evil, and just as broken as the world around us. And what happens is, is that we live in the world, but we're also of the world. And this is one of the, probably one of the biggest problems in the 21st century church is that the church has become more like the world than the world has become more like the church. Bruce Ashford, in his book on this particular topic, said this. He said, when Christians adopt a popular culture mindset, that is, when you take upon the culture around you, when you take on that mindset, they take away Christianity's ability to be a prophetic voice and usually end up sacrificing doctrine and moral beliefs that run contrary to the cultural consensus. So what happens is, is that when you are so entrenched in the things of this world, you become like the world, and so you can't say anything because you look like a hypocrite. You know, think about this. If you're trying to convince other people to be a Christian, and they look at your life, and they don't see anything different than theirs, why would they want to change? Why would they want to be anything different? And so what God says that when it comes to the community, he says don't assimilate, but also don't isolate. This is the other extreme that, we happen, that happens among believers, is that we keep ourselves in our own little Christian bubbles. And we only do things with Christians, and we only care about ourselves, and we only care about our advancement, and we only care about our, our tribe. And what happens is we become so sheltered in a subculture that we have no desire to reach people beyond people that look like us, think like us, act like us, and vote like us. And what happens is that as we get into our little Christian bubble here and we live our lives completely separate, completely isolated from the community and the world around us, thinking that we're doing a, doing a thing for God here, is that we're so insulating ourselves from the world that it basically becomes this mentality of us against the world. And so a lot of people, even in the church, have this. It's Christianity against the world. Let's go. And so church becomes a bomb shelter in which we all huddle together to protect ourselves from the outside world. Listen, that's not what Christianity is all about. Jesus didn't say that you are the light of the world. Go hide. He said, no, you're a light of the world. Be seen. We're the salt of the earth. What good is it for salt to stay in the salt shaker? Salt is meant to be out there because one of the things that salt does is it holds back decay. So he says, don't assimilate, don't isolate. Oh, my stars, I wish I could, I could preach an entire sermon on those two points. But here's the last thing. He says, participate. Build houses, live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce, get married and have kids. In the south, in Kentucky, here's what they would, basically this is what God was saying. Take your shoes off and stay a while. Take your shoes off, stay a while. Because Jeremiah 25, verse 11, and even in our text in Jeremiah 29, says it's going to be at least 70 years. So God says, listen, you're going to be here for a while, so you might as well be involved. 
You might as well be engaged in the community around you. You can't just bury your head in the sand or spend all of your time here moping around. You know, some Christians, that's just all they are. They they sit and and get so upset about the world around them. They mope around. They get so aggravated. They're kind of like a kid. Maybe some of you have had kids this way, that when a kid doesn't like how things are going, that things aren't going their way, and they get upset. And so I've I've seen some kids, personally I've seen some kids, that things didn't go their way. They get mad and they say, you know what, Daddy, I don't want to do, sorry, some kid says, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be involved. But, you know, they don't necessarily say I'm not gonna participate. But they they sit in the corner with a scowl on their face, and everybody else around them is having a great time, and they're sitting there. They're just unhappy. They're upset, and and in their mind, they're hoping that everything's gonna change while they're unhappy. But guess what happens? Nothing changes. They're just sitting there miserable. And I'm afraid that there's a lot of people in the church that things aren't going their way. And they just sit there with a scowl on their face, and they sit there upset and angry, and nothing changes. We are called to bloom where we are planted. We are living in the in-between, and what God says is just embrace it and participate. Don't pout. Don't mope around. Be in the world, but not of the world, and make a difference where God has placed you. So the second point is this. We are to participate in the community. But then secondly, we're to pursue the community, to pursue the community. Verse 7, he says, but seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you. So as God says, listen, he says, build houses, have kids, multiply. And he says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you. The word seek here, he's actually going to use in another form later on in verse 13. It means to search diligently, to to search carefully, to pursue it, to work for the welfare of the city, to be actively involved in and pursuing the good of the city and the community around you. And then he says, pray to the Lord on its behalf. On behalf of what? On behalf of the city. In other words, he says, intercede and ask God to bless the city that you're living in. Now, what was the city that these people were living in? It was the city of Babylon. Who were the Babylonians? Those were the people that captured them. Those were the people that were hostile towards them. Those were the people that were different than them. And yet those people that are hostile towards us and different than us are those that we're called to serve and to pray for. If many of us as believers spent more of our energy serving the city rather than griping about the city, we might see more done in the city. Now listen. Our enemy is not our enemy. Our enemy is our mission field. And here's what I've learned in my own personal life. It's hard to reach someone you hate. It's hard to reach someone you hate. And it's hard to hate someone you're praying for. So here, God says, seek the shalom. That's the word welfare. Shalom of the city. Now, when we think of the word shalom... We think of the word peace. Seek the peace of the city. Seek the shalom of the city. And peace is not just a cessation of hostilities. What it is, it's seeking the total flourishing in every dimension of the city. Seek the flourishing of the city. So many times we think, well, that's just spiritually. That if we did everything spiritually right, then the city would be right. And I don't discount the fact that if spiritually the city of Sanford was right with God, that things would change. 
But if you look even how Jesus ministered to people, he didn't just minister them spiritually. It wasn't like the woman that came to him with the issue of blood just came and as she touched the hem of his garments was immediately forgiven of her sins but still had the issue of blood. What did Jesus do? He healed her both physically and spiritually. See, God is a holistic God. He's not just dividing us up. Yes, it's important to be right with God spiritually. But to seek the shalom of a city, to seek the welfare of a people is not just to seek for their spiritual well-being, which is vitally important because if you have soup and soap, if you don't have a Savior, you're still going to hell. But to seek the shalom of the city is not just to seek their spiritual welfare, but to pursue social welfare, social peace, social justice, economic justice, racial justice, physical justice, physical peace, and spiritual peace. So for someone to say, you know, we're a church and we're all about preaching the gospel, that's great. That's what the church should be. But a part of the gospel is ensuring justice, right? Is speaking against racism, is helping people financially, is loving people who are physically disabled, who is supporting people who are in need in our community. That's what it means to seek the shalom of the city. See, we seek, when you and I seek our communities flourishing, not just for our sake or for our tribe's sake, but for the city's sake, that's when we see things happen. See, we are called to care for people and to see people as God sees them and see God bless these people. Here's a question I have for all of us. Do you believe that God can transform our city? Three of you. All right. Do you believe that God can transform the city of Sanford and the surrounding communities? Now, here's the next question. Do you believe he wants to? then what are you doing about it? What am I doing about it? If we believe that God can and we believe that God wants to, then we should do everything we can to be on board with what he wants, to serve and pray for our city. See, as believers, we are the light of the world. We are to be a blessing of the world. For Israel, the Abrahamic covenant said, said this, that God said to Abraham that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And today in the new covenant, we are called to be a blessing to all nations. To give glory to God. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it underneath a basket. But on a stand and it gives light to all that are in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others. So that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, our good works... Those good works are not just God bless you's when someone sneezes. Our good works are real deeds done by real people who really love God. Those are what gives glory to God. Altruistic sentiment, thinking good thoughts are great things. But believers are not called just to think good thoughts. Believers are called to do good deeds. And we are called not to live for ourselves and to ourselves. We are called to live for the glory of God. And God is most glorified in us when we are out 
serving others and finding satisfaction in him. That's how the early church grew. You think about this. God called 12 ordinary men with, with great, uh, uh, up to 150 plus men and women in the upper room serving God. There would later be 500 and later there would be a few thousand. And as you continue to read the story of Christianity, Christianity continued to grow so much so that this morning on August the 24th, 2020, we're meeting in Sanford, Florida, worshiping a risen Savior. How do you think that happened? By osmosis? No, it happened because the people of God took the word of God to the cities. And they did it through good news, sharing the good news, and through doing good deeds. See, the early church grew by sharing the gospel and serving people when no one else would. Rodney Stark, who is a great Christian historian, writes in his book, which I commend to everyone, The Rise of Christianity. Here's what he says. He says in 250 A.D., a plague struck the Roman Empire. It was Corona. It was COVID. It was COVID-2, um, I think. And COVID-2 struck the Roman Empire, killing an, on average 5,000 people a day. At this time, Christians were less than 2% of the entire population. But yet their numbers were growing. But statistically speaking, they were very insignificant. Yet despite their numbers, their response to the pandemic won a greater following. So much so that Dionysus, who is a bishop of Corinth, who is a Christian, reported this. He said, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only or never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Dionysus continued. He says, but with non-Christians, everything was quite otherwise. They deserted those who began to be sick and fled from their dearest friends. So you have two examples. Christians ran in when everyone else ran out. Non-Christians ran out while Christians ran in. That's how a church is going to grow. That's how people are going to be saved. That's how communities are going to be changed. It's not that when the going gets tough, the church takes off. But it's when the going gets tough, the church steps in. Listen, you have to understand this. I'm very passionate about this. I wrote my doctoral dissertation on this, so that's why I'm passionate I am about it. Here's what we have to all understand. The attractional church model. Now, some of you are like, what are you talking about? It sounds like Greek to me. The attractional church model for growth is dying in America. What do I mean by the attractional church model? Here's what it is. Having the best music, having the best preaching, having the best programs, and having the biggest buildings is what the attractional model is. So if it was the Field of Dreams theological understanding that if you build them, they will come. The attractional model of the 70s and 80s and 90s and early 2000s was a phenomena. It was a way in which the church did grow. But you want to know why the church grew through the attractional model? It didn't necessarily grow numerically, but churches grew bigger and buildings got bigger and programs got bigger and preaching got better and music got louder. <laughs> that was a joke. Because in that day, there were more people who identified as Christians than they do today. Here's the problem with the attractional model. The attractional model assumes that most people want to come to church. So, if you have the biggest and bestest and, and whatever, I'm, I'm now using different kind of language. 
asbestos. It's very huge. Now, I'm, now, now it's, this whole thing's gone off the rails. It's just completely gone off the rails. Here's the deal. The attractional model assumed people wanted to go to church, but in the truth, most people don't want to go to church. For a lot of people, church is not on the radar. I guarantee you this. When you drive to go home or when you drive to go to the restaurant, there's going to be way more people that you run into that didn't go to church than did. So if people are not into church, it doesn't matter how cool or how hip or how trendy our church is because people won't be interested. And one of the things, listen, we, we want excellence. We, we, we want to reach people. We, we don't, we don't want to just be halfway. But here's one thing. I tell this to my staff. We can't out Disney Disney. We can't. Steve Timmis, a church planner in England, said this. He says, no matter how good the pastor is, the music is, the programs are, if believers don't carry the gospel outside of the walls, no one is going to hear us. So, all of that's introduction to this point. So the whole thing was introduction. Now I'm going to get to the sermon. The first 10 years, God has been moving pieces to get us where we are now. The vision is the same, to be multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multiplying church. But I am convinced that for us to do that successfully in a post-Christian, post-COVID apocalypse, it's going to be by the church being heavily invested in the community. Matter of fact, in June, God put specifically on my heart that our church needs to be more involved in community outreach than ever before. And over the years, we've had this motto that we're going to love the people that nobody wants, and God will give us the people that everybody wants, and he's done that. But more than just occasional outreaches, more than just occasional events, we need to be all in in the city to meet the needs of the city for the city. And so we are establishing a ministry that you're going to hear more and more about called For Central Florida. If you saw that trailer... Um, that we're going to show again at the end of our service. That's just one small little piece of where I see the church going <clears throat> and reaching the needs of the city. I've spent the past couple of months speaking with everybody that will let me talk to them in our city of what the greatest needs in our city are. And I've been praying through what are the giftings and the passions of our church and what are the, what are the, what are the, 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 the goals and desires uh, that, that we can fulfill in reaching the city that maybe nobody else is reaching because I don't want to just reinvent the wheel. So I want to give you at least three areas in which our church in the next few months to years are going to be focusing on establishing this ministry for Central Florida. We're going to be focusing not just exclusively, but primarily in the beginning on three areas. Number one, we're going to be focusing on women in crisis. We should understand that there's a huge need in our city for women that are abused, women that are neglected, single mothers, and there's a huge need in our city to help reach those wonderful people. And so our church, over the past few years, has been establishing in partnerships and ministries, and God is bringing things together in which this ministry for women in crisis is going to be called Beauty from Ashes. 
in which God continues to move and work. In our church, I believe with all of my heart, and I see one day in which we have a, 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 maybe even a ministry house where, where women that are in need, women in transition, women in crisis can go and live with their children, and we can come alongside of them and minister to them, not just giving them soup and soap and a place to live, but giving them the gospel and giving them tools so that they can get out of the cycle that they're in. Another area that we're going to be focusing on is children in need. We've already established it's starting at Midway Elementary, an after-school Bible club called a Beach Club in which on Monday afternoons we're going to be doing after-school care. And one of the things that we get to do is share the gospel in the schools. Somebody said they took prayer out to schools. No. No, God's still moving. And we're going to be using that as an opportunity. And we're going to be loving on those teachers. As a matter of fact, this week... Uh, last week, we gave thousands of dollars in school supplies through your generosity to Midway Elementary. We are, we are all in to do even more than that with the goal of reaching multiple schools with Bible, with after-school clubs in the next couple of years. And here's the deal. We need your help. We need your help. If you're a retiree or if you're someone that has some time on Monday afternoons, come see our children's director, Mary Eppel. Or text into our text number 407-338-4024 and say, I want to serve. And then the third area that I think is the greatest need is mental health. We're facing a mental health crisis in America. We have teen suicide on the rise, self-harm, depression. And so the prayer is, is that we start helping with support groups that can maybe lead into a long-term counseling and helping people find holistic help in Jesus Christ for mental health. So what I want you to hear from me today is that we're not just going to be dipping our toes in the water, but we're going to jump all in. And my prayer is that you'll get behind it. My prayer is that you'll be a part of it. And my prayer is that you'll pray for it. Because why? Prayer is the work. Prayer is the work. Prayer is the work. John Wesley said, God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. Here's what I've learned. One God idea in ministry is better than a thousand good ideas. So participate in the community. Pursue the community. Seek the welfare. Don't just gripe about the community, but be involved in the community. Voting is a big part of that. Listen, here's the thing. If you don't vote, don't gripe. All right? If you vote, you can gripe all you want. But if you don't vote, it's on you. Because here the Bible says, in its welfare, in the, in the city's shalom, you find your shalom. This isn't completely self-serving. But here's the reality. The reality is that if our city and our communities are flourishing, the church will flourish. That may not be how we think, but it's going to flourish. It may not be that we're not going to have persecution. We may flourish in persecution. Look at the church in China. But here's what I know. A rising tide lifts all boats. And as we step up and we step up to the plate and we serve this city, we're going to see God do some amazing things. But it starts with us having a desire for it and it starts to pray for it. Let me get to the last point, because my time is gone. And that is to point the community to hope. Participate in the community, pursue the community, point the community to hope. Here's what I want to say. The only way that you and I are going to not assimilate and be like the world, but also not isolate and just separate ourselves from the world, the power for us to actively participate and pursue the community, that does not come from within. No amount of guilt or shame is going to get you to serve in the community. 
I mean, I can come up here and, and, and beat you over the head and tell you, you need to do this or you're a sorry person. That may last for a time, but even when you're serving, you're not going to be happy doing it. There's no motivation and guilt and shame. It's not going to last. It's like if you ever watched one of these telethons. Remember back in, back in the olden days when we had these telethons on television? And they would tell you all these sad stories. They would guilt you and shame you and make you give them money through that. Well, maybe you gave, maybe you didn't. But after you gave once, you probably didn't want to do it again because you just felt it was a duty. I want you to understand that no one is going to serve the community. No one's going to really obey God out of duty in a way that's going to honor God. God doesn't want us to obey him out of duty. God wants us to obey him because we see his beauty. We see something greater. So in verses 10 through 14, God reminds the people of Israel his promise that he made in chapter 25, verse 11, that he was not going to leave them in exile, but in 70 years he was going to bring them home. Now, verse 11 is a specific promise given to a specific people in captivity in Babylon. God says to those people in Babylon, I have plans for you. And those plans are not to destroy you. Those plans are not to forsake you. Those plans are to deliver you and to restore you. God says Babylon is not all that God has planned for you. God made a promise that he was going to rescue his people because God has plans. Now, verse 11 is a great precious promise that God made to Israel then. Not necessarily to you in the sense that he made it to them, but there are principles from this promise that are for you. Because in our day, we know that, we know that today the promise of God came to pass, didn't it? Israel came out of bondage. God's plans came to pass. Well, here's what I want you to hear. Oh, my stars, listen. For you and I in Christ, God's got better plans. See, for them, it was just to get them out of Babylon into Jerusalem. But for us, it's far greater. But I don't know all the plans. Do you know all the plans? I don't know all the plans that God has for me. But you know what? Something greater than than the plans, I know the person. See, they didn't know the person. They only hoped to know the plans. But we know part of the plans, but greater we know the person. Because in John chapter 14, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. I've got plans for you. Your home is not here. It's in heaven. And in heaven, all injustices will be righted. All will worship Christ. And Jesus is going to make everything sad untrue. That's the Christian hope. Now, think about this. If all there is is this world, then dig deep and hold on. Live for yourself Make all the money you can. Live your best life now. Live in fear. Don't think about others. Only think about yourself and your family. Don't help anybody unless in helping them it helps you. Live for yourself and not for others. If all this, or all this is, is what we see here, then you just live for you. But if you know that this world is not all there is, and if you know that something better lies ahead, then you and I can leverage everything we have and go broke to serve our city and to point them to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That we leave it all on the field and hold nothing back because he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Our hope is not in forming some sort of utopian dream. We serve the city for the purpose of pointing them to Christ. 
And therefore, our hope is not in the city, but in the one who died for the city outside of the city, and his name is Jesus Christ. And that's the hope the community needs. That's what they need. They don't need political hope. I'm not, tr- I'm not saying a political statement here, but they don't need to just hear, make America great again. Or they don't need to hear, build back better. They need to hear, Jesus saves. Because political slogans come and go, but the kingdom of God comes and grows. Because you and I serve the one who conquers all kingdoms. And when Babylon falls for the final time and every flag is lowered and every king bends their knees, he will reign forever. From the empty tomb outside of Jerusalem rings the words of him who promises, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Ed Stetzer said that the turning point in our story never fell on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. It fell on a weekend when the veil was torn in two on Friday and the stone was rolled away on Sunday. The hope that Sanford needs in the surrounding communities is Jesus because Jesus is hope for the addict, he's hope for the prostitute, he's hope for the abused child, he's hope for the hurting parent, he's hope for the broken marriage, he's hope for the suicidal student, he's hope for the gender-confused person, he's hope for the couple contemplating abortion, he's hope for the homeless, hope for the helpless, and hope for the suffering, and he's hope for you. So let me end with this. In this long-winded sermon, I'll end with this. Can Jesus make a difference in the city of Sanford? Yes, he can. Can he use you to do it? Yes, he can. In a COVID-19 world, we need to love and serve our city like we never have before. And we need to point them to the hope we have in Jesus, not fear. Not fear. See, when everyone runs out of the city, the church runs in. Why? Because Jesus ran to the cross to save the city, and we run to the city and point them to the cross. And how can we do that? Because we know God's got plans. God's got plans. And because God's got plans, we got hope. The God who fulfilled the promise to Israel is the same God who fulfills the promise to you. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, oh, what a day to trust your life to Him. If you're here and you want to serve God and you feel this stirring in your heart to do more than just being a pew warmer or a couch surfer, those of you online, then why don't you text into this number, 407-338-4024. And you text your name in there and you just put the word serve, put me anywhere. And we will. I just want to serve. It could be serving the city. I want to serve with the after-school program. I want to serve in children's ministry. I want to serve in student ministry. Listen, God's moving. He's moving. Kids are getting saved every week around here. They want to serve in some ministry. I want to be a part of what God is doing here. Somebody, this week, somebody started the membership process, and they said, Pastor, what led us here is that when we walk in these doors, there's life. Well, it's not my life. It's not your life. You know whose life it is? It's his life. 407-338-4024. If you need somebody to pray with you, someone to talk to you, if you need somebody, you text in that number. 
you want to take a next step towards baptism or a small group, you text into that number. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb. Lord, what I could not do, what I could not say, what I could not think, you go ahead through the power of your Holy Spirit and do a work I couldn't do. Lord, I pray that many of us in this room will not forget this day that you've called us to not just be pew warmers or couch surfers, but to be on fire for you. Lord, move, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. For more information or how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.